Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me once again to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 12. We're going to look at selected verses in between verses 1 and 30. Exodus chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. As you know, tomorrow is Memorial Day. It is that day that we set aside to remind ourselves of those who gave their lives in service to this country. Well, thousands of years ago, God instituted a different Memorial Day. In fact, in the passage we're going to read this morning, God literally said, this day shall be a memorial to you. But this particular Memorial Day was not about us remembering soldiers who died fighting for their country. This Memorial Day is about the people of God remembering another sacrifice that was made by which God brought them out of slavery and into freedom. This Memorial Day is best known as Passover. Now, Passover of 2021 happened about two months ago, but we've been studying the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. We've come to chapter 12 in which we find the Passover story. This is the 10th plague with which God strikes Egypt, and with this plague, God proves once and for all that the gods of Egypt are false and that Yahweh is the one true God. But as Christians, when we read the Passover story, we cannot help but see something deeper, something greater. When we look at the Passover story, we see one of the clearest examples, one of the clearest pictures of the gospel you will find anywhere in the Old Testament. What God did at that very first Passover in Exodus chapter 12 was a picture of what God was going to do almost 1,500 years later through Jesus Christ. And thus, when we read the New Testament, Jesus is repeatedly portrayed as the fulfillment of the Passover. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he referred to Jesus as our Passover lamb. So when we read the Passover story, this isn't just something from history that happened once a long time ago. This is about what God is doing today. This is about how a man or woman can be saved and why it has to be this way. Why God did it this way. Several things that we learn about the gospel through reading the Passover story. Three things in particular I want to show you about how all of this points us to Jesus. First of all, I want you to notice that when we read about the Passover, there's a standard that must be met. I want you to see the standard that must be met. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, 
On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. So far, we've read about nine plagues, and we see how God used blood, and He used frogs, gnats, flies, how God cursed the livestock, even their bodies, with boils. We've seen how God sent hail and pestilence and darkness. And when we come to this last plague, we already saw in the chapter before, it's going to involve the death of the firstborn. So can you imagine what everybody must have been thinking? Everybody was wondering, what will God use now? How is God going to bring this final plague about? It must be something big. It must be something terrible. It must be something terrifying. What will it be? What will God use? And then finally Moses makes the announcement that God will use a lamb to bring all of this about. A lamb? The most gentle creatures? No claws? No fangs? Slow? Defenseless? Not all that bright. I think Moses might have thought to himself for just a moment, God, are you sure you're going to do this by means of a lamb? You know, Pharaoh, he's got a cobra as his symbol. That's pretty scary. A lamb, on the other hand, not much scary about that. Yes, Moses, every man will take a lamb. But I want you to notice there's something about this Passover lamb. It cannot be, it will not be just any kind of lamb. Look at verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Later on in verse 21, Moses told the people to sacrifice a lamb immediately. But every year thereafter, when they celebrated the Passover, they were told to seek out and find a lamb that was without blemish. And when the Bible says that this lamb, that first Passover, that had to be without blemish, understand that in Leviticus, without blemish means it could not be blind, it could not have a broken hoof, the wool had to be pure. It could not be stained. It could not have a runny nose. It could not have a scab or an infection. It couldn't even have an itch. This lamb had to be perfect. Only a perfect lamb would do. Now you ask, Pastor, why is there this emphasis on the perfection of this lamb? Well, it's not just because God deserves our very best. Although, yes, absolutely, God does deserve our very best. But there was a bigger reason for this. This lamb had to meet the standard of perfection because it was a picture of another lamb, Jesus. 
You remember, we all remember what John the Baptist said when he introduced Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb had to be without blemish because it represented a Savior who would be without sin. Jesus had to meet that same standard of perfection in his life. And folks, this is what we need. You see, we are sinners. We are guilty. But we need innocence. Because sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. Therefore, Jesus came and lived a life without sin. He was completely, perfectly innocent so that he might exchange his innocence for our guilt when he died on the cross. But to do that, he had to be that perfect lamb without blemish. Only a perfect lamb could be slain for us. Now, I want you to notice in our text, the lamb was chosen on the 10th day, but they didn't sacrifice it until the 14th day. You realize what that means? That means they had four days to closely inspect and examine that lamb just to make sure there weren't any defects that perhaps they didn't notice at first. And so for four days, they would look over it very, very carefully to make sure that it was indeed a lamb without blemish. Well, likewise, for 30 years, Jesus was examined. He was observed by his family, by his friends. He reaches the beginning of his earthly ministry at the age of 30. And then for three years, he was closely observed and examined by the multitudes. He was examined by the religious authorities. He was examined by the scribes. He was examined by the Pharisees. He was examined by the, religious, uh, by the Romans. Even Pontius Pilate, who passed down his sentence, said, I find no fault in him. There's an interesting question that Jesus asked once that really summarizes his life. He asked in John 8, 46, which of you convicts me of sin? Think about that question. Which of you convicts me of sin? I wouldn't dare ask that question. I certainly would not ask that question to my wife. When have you seen me sin? She might say, today? I wouldn't ask that of my friends, much less my enemies. And yet Jesus asked that question even of those who opposed him. He's the only one who could ask that question honestly, which is why his father could say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That means over and over again, Jesus passed the test. Jesus met the standard. By the way, I also want you to notice that even the time of the Passover sacrifice points to Christ. We were told in verse 6 that they were to sacrifice this lamb at twilight. In the Hebrew, it's a very interesting phrase. It's not just one word, but there's a phrase that refers to that time between 3 and 6 p.m., 
which means they would begin to sacrifice the Passover lamb at literally the same time at which Jesus would hang upon the cross, stretch himself out, and say, it is finished before he died. Even the timing of the death of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, pointed to Jesus. So we see this standard that had to be met and how over and over again Jesus met that standard. Only Jesus did. Only he could. But there's something else that's very important that this story teaches us about the gospel. We also see the application that must take place. There is an application that must take place. Look at verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. At the very first Passover, it was not enough to have a lamb. It was not enough to love your lamb. It was not even enough for you to kill the lamb. The blood of the lamb had to be applied. And when they took the blood of the lamb and they painted it on the doorpost and on the lintel of their home, it was a public profession of faith in God. It was a public profession of faith in the promises of God. Now, verses 8 through 11 describe the Passover meal, how they were to prepare it, what they were supposed to do with the leftovers. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That night, God visited every home. And when he did, he was looking for one thing and only one thing, just the blood. When God visited each home, it did not matter what the net worth was inside just the blood. It did not matter their level of education, just the blood. It didn't matter how many worldly achievements they had, just the blood. In that moment, even their moral character did not matter, just the blood. God did not stop at that home and ask, is this person better or worse than their neighbors? Just the blood. When I was attending seminary in the late 90s, Dr. Paige Patterson was the president, and he was hired and contracted to be a consultant for a movie I bet many of you have seen, an animated movie came out over 20 years ago called Prince of Egypt. I'm curious, how many of you have seen the movie Prince of Egypt? I recommend it. It's a really great movie. Dr. Patterson was flown to Hollywood to serve as a consultant for that film. And he was watching, along with a number of other Bible scholars, the first 
version of the movie. This is the version that did not make it to the big screen. He was watching this particular version of the movie, and when it came to the Passover scene, God told the Israelites to merely paint the doorpost and the lintel red, as if any old red paint would do. Well, Dr. Patterson and a few others did not wait until the end of the movie to protest. They stood up and said, you cannot, you must not remove the blood. And that is why, if you watch the movie today, yes, there is blood. It had to be blood. Now, someone will ask, Pastor, why was the blood so crucial at the Passover? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, the blood of the Passover was symbolic of the blood that Jesus would shed upon the cross. Romans 5.9 says that we are justified by His blood. Ephesians 1.7 says we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1.17 says the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We get to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. John is given just a glimpse, just a peek into heaven, and he sees the multitudes there wearing robes of white. Why? Because they've been cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. We see this again and again in the Word of God that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only liquid in the universe that can wash sin away. But there is another reason why blood had to be shed at the Passover and at the cross. You see, blood demonstrates that sin leads to death. Let me say that again. Blood demonstrates that sin leads to death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. There's a question I've heard asked numerous times over the years that I've been a pastor. Every now and then someone will ask the question, why did someone have to die for me to be forgiven? And they might even say, you know, if somebody wrongs me and I want to forgive them, I'll just forgive them. I'm not going to require that somebody die before I forgive them? There's something that you need to understand. You see, when forgiveness takes place, someone must absorb the cost of what was done. If you steal my car and then wreck and total my car, I very well can just forgive you. But if I do, I will have to absorb the cost of what you have done. If you don't pay it, that means that I must pay it. Now listen, this is always how forgiveness works. Likewise, Jesus had to 
die on the cross. Yes, His blood had to be shed because the cross was how Jesus absorbed the cost for what we have done so that we could be forgiven. And this is why Israel had to be included in this. On the same night, God visited every Egyptian home. He also visited every Hebrew home. Why? Because they were all sinners. Because they were all guilty. Because they were all under the sentence of death. Because they were all worthy of judgment. And therefore, blood had to be shed. Even for Israel, only the homes that were covered by the blood had the judgment of God withheld. Now, it's one thing to be told what to do. I think we all know it's another thing to do what you're told. So look at what the Israelites did in light of all this. Verse 28. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. I cannot imagine anything more terrifying than the sound of cries coming in the middle of the night from every Egyptian home upon discovering that death had visited them. On the other hand, when God came to the Israelite home, and when He saw the blood, you know what God said? He said, someone has already died here. The punishment has already been paid here. And His judgment passed them over. Once again, how can we not see in all of this a picture of the gospel? Romans 3.25 says that we are saved through faith in His blood. It's not just that Jesus died, but there must be that moment, that act of faith in which we place our faith in the shed blood of Jesus upon the cross. And in that moment, the blood of Christ is applied to the doorpost of our hearts. And when God sees that blood covering you, covering me, you know what God says? God says, someone already died here. The penalty has already been paid here. And judgment passes over us. You know, right down the road from us up in Miami, there's little girl, I think she's about five years old now. Some of you may remember hearing about her in the news a couple of years ago. She had cancer. The last I've heard, she's in remission, praise the Lord. 
This little girl regularly needed blood transfusions. There was, however, one problem. Her blood type is so rare, there are only five people that we know about in the entire world who have that blood type whose blood she can receive. And for this little girl, if those other four people do not regularly give blood, this little girl dies. Likewise, for our sins to be forgiven, there had to be a blood donor. The blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed for you and me. But when it comes to this blood, listen to me carefully, there are not five donors, there's just one. Because only Jesus was the Lamb without blemish and without spot. Only Jesus was the Son of God made man who lived a perfect, sinless life, who was willing to go to the cross and shed His blood and die for you and for me. So we see this standard that must be met, the standard of perfection. We see the application that must take place. That blood that was shed must be applied to the doorposts of our hearts. But let me show you one more way in which the Passover points to Jesus. We see, finally, the result that must follow. There's a result that must follow. Look at verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. God knew that when Israel entered the promised land, they were going to need something to remind them because it would be very easy to forget what God had done, especially as one generation was replaced by the next generation, which was replaced by the next generation. So here is what God did. He took the Passover. He made it an annual observance, but he did not stop there. This event called the Passover was then followed by what is called the Feast of of unleavened bread, this seven-day feast. Now, when we talk about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, these were not two separate events. These were really two parts of the same event. It started with the Passover. God instructed them how they were to eat the Passover meal, and He instructed them to wear their belts and put on their sandals and hold their staff while they ate, reenacting that first Passover as if they're ready to leave at any moment. He told them to roast the lamb with bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of all those years they spent as slaves in Egypt. But then, just like the name of the feast, they were to eat unleavened bread or bread without yeast. Now, God told them to do this for two reasons. First, at the first Passover, they literally did not have time to cook leavened bread. 
because soon they would be departing Egypt. But there's another reason, a much deeper reason. We see repeatedly in Scripture how leaven or how yeast is a symbol for sin. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast of hypocrisy. Now these days, we just buy our bread. But if you make bread, you know that just a little bit of leaven, just the tiniest amount, given enough time, left to itself, what it'll do? It will work its way through the dough until the entire batch has been affected by that leaven. Likewise, sin, the smallest amount, if we ignore it, if we excuse it, if we turn a blind eye and we look the other way, over time, given the opportunity, what will it do? It'll spread. It'll affect other areas of our lives until eventually the whole self is affected because of it. And so God gave them the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He instructed them to go through their homes and look for and remove any yeast they could find. Even today in modern Jewish homes, they will literally boil their pots and their pans and their utensils just in case some trace amount of yeast came into contact with any of that. Just as they were to search their homes and get rid of that leaven, it was a picture and it was a reminder of how having been saved... They were to search their lives and search their hearts for that yeast of unconfessed sin so that they would confess it and be pure. See, in, all, in doing all of this, God did not just want to get his people out of Egypt. You know what God wanted? God wanted to get Egypt out of his people. And that's why the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were placed side by side together. The Passover, as we've seen, is a picture of salvation. The lamb that was slain, whose blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and saved. The Passover is a picture of salvation. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread following Passover, the picture of sanctification. It is a picture of that process by which God helps us to identify and confess and repent of that unconfessed sin in our lives, however small it might be, so that we might be like that unleavened bread, a pure and holy people before God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, as you know, met with his disciples in the upper room, and they celebrated the Passover feast. But when Jesus did so with his disciples on that day, of course, very soon he would be arrested. Very soon he would die upon the cross and rise again. But on that particular day, Jesus took the Passover meal and he infused it with new meaning and he instituted something new for us to continue, which we refer to as the Lord's Supper. 
But when at that Passover meal, Jesus said, this is my body. When he took that cup and he said, this is my blood, make no mistake about it, Jesus was saying, Passover is about me. He was saying, I am the Passover lamb. My body will be broken and my blood will be shed for you. And just as the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was meant to motivate God's people to holiness, Jesus took that same concept. He carried it further, and he gave us the Lord's Supper so that as we remember the price Jesus paid for us on the cross, we would be motivated to live out in our lives what God has already done, what God has already declared when he saved us and said, not guilty. During World War II, there was a chaplain in the army who desperately wanted to celebrate the Lord's Supper with some of the soldiers who were believers, but he did not have a communion kit. And so he decided to get a little bit innovative, and he found 80 50 caliber shells, and he took those shells, which otherwise would be used to take life, he emptied them, he cleaned them, he welded them, turned them into communion cups. And today, they're in a museum in Daytona Beach at the Veterans Museum. You can go see that communion set if you want to. But that chaplain, you know what he did? He took that very thing, those bullets that were an instrument of death, and turned them into a symbol of life. 2,000 years ago, Jesus took that which was an instrument of death, the cross, and by laying down his life on the cross for you and for me, that which was an instrument of death became an instrument of life for whosoever believes. Would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Passover, that it's more than just a story. And it's not just about Israel, it's about us. And it's about how you save a man or woman even today. We thank you for all of the ways that it points us to Christ and all the things that we learn about him. But Father, I pray that just as the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread motivated your people to holiness then, I pray that upon receiving the Lord's Supper, we would be motivated to holy lives today. That you would remind us afresh and anew of just how high a price was paid so that we could be saved. And God, I pray that in these moments you would show us if there is any leaven of sin that we need to root out, confess, and repent of. No matter how big or small we may think it is, because we know what leaven left alone will do. And so would you help us in these moments to see that by your Spirit? Would you speak to us and show us that sin that you would have us to confess before you? We'd be a holy and a pure people in your sight. God, I want to pray for those who honestly in this moment, there's never been that moment where that blood of the Lamb was applied to their hearts. 
God, we remember what your word says, that we are saved through faith in his blood. I pray that this would be that time, that moment, that some man, woman, boy, or girl in this room, watching online right now, would say, Jesus, I trust in your blood to forgive me, to cleanse me, and to save me right now. You've promised you'll do it. If there's even one in this moment who needs to be saved, that this would be that moment of sweet surrender in which they call upon the name of Jesus and trust in him, and that blood of the Lamb that was shed 2,000 years ago would be applied to the doorpost of their hearts. Father, speak to us in these moments and show us what you'd have us to do so that we would give you all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name.